Hello there, this is Mark Bauerlein with another conversation. Before we get to it, a word about one of our sponsors. You may have seen a recent article in InsideHigherEd.com that began, Wyoming Catholic College has a lot of unusual things about it, each enough to merit a story in itself. Wyoming Catholic is a conservative Catholic college that educates students in the great books and Catholic tradition. It also teaches horsemanship and bans cell phones on campus. I love that. And it turned down federal funding. President Glenn Arbery describes the mission this way. This college is engaged in deep ways with the agony of a culture that has lost its spiritual center. We're adventurous and poetic and deeply Catholic. He likes to cite Dostoevsky in Crime and Punishment. Low ceilings are bad for the soul. The ceilings rise at Wyoming Catholic, which is located in the foothills of the Wind River Mountains. The curriculum centers in the Western tradition. Its Catholic identity builds upon Thomas Aquinas and the magisterium of the Catholic Church and engaging with God in the wilderness. Find out more at wyomingcatholic.edu. Carl Truman is with us. He's professor of religious studies at Grove City College, author or editor of many books, including The Creedal Imperative and Luther on the Christian Life. Another book just came out entitled The Rise of the Modern Self, Cultural Amnesia, Expressive Individualism, and the Road to Sexual Revolution. Welcome, Carl. It's great to be here, Mark. Thanks for having me on. Let's jump right into the book. Uh, You start with a a claim right off the bat. Quote, I am a woman trapped in a man's body. How does the trans identity follow from the first principles of the sexual revolution? Yeah, that's a great question. And and one of the One of my burdens in the book was to try to explain how the cultural ideas come to fruition that make transgenderism plausible. And as you point out, ties in very closely to the sexual revolution, which really has its origins in, I think, uh, a threefold move in, in Western thinking. First of all, it involves a psychological construction of the self, that the way we think of ourselves, our individuality, the way we think of our humanity has to do with how we think inside. It's that voice of nature, if you like, inside our head that comes to be the most important element in what makes us who we are. Secondly, that voice of nature becomes profoundly sexualized. So if we say the Rousseau and the Romantics make the first move, Uh, The second move really comes in the late 19th, early 20th century with Freud, when he basically says, yeah, you you are your desires, you are your inner psyche, but that is a profoundly sexual thing. Uh, And he paves the way really for us understanding identity as a sexuality. If you go back to ancient Greece, lots of homosexual behavior, nobody identified as gay. Sex was something you did, it wasn't something you are. Freud changes all that. He makes our desires constitutive of, of who we are as people. And of course, once you do that, once you make the, the move to saying we are that which we desire, we are our sexual desires, you're really setting up the play for making sex a highly political thing because sexual codes, the corralling of sex, the prohibition on certain sexual behaviors actually becomes a, a coercing of the person or a prohibition on certain identities. So when we hit the 60s, the political revolution takes a a profoundly sexual form, particularly in many of the the student protests of 1968. Where does transgenderism fit into that? Well, in in some ways, transgenderism is, you could provocatively say, it's the ultimate romantic view of the self. Clearly, it rests upon the notion of an inner psychological identity being, being the true you. And it piggybacks off the the sexual revolution because 
transgender people always had a, a kind of marginal role in gay life, in queer life, in what emerges from the 60s. And they're victims. They're marginal victims. And therefore, uh, they're able to effectively tag themselves on to the LGB movement as victims of the oppressive, white, heteronormative Western culture and, and present themselves as, as in need of liberation. So that's a sort of, uh, in, in, in two minutes, I've tried to summarize, be like 400 pages of argument. But that's essentially where it comes from. Yeah. Your interest is in how certain thinkers, ideas, theories created a context within which claims such as that could be, as you put it, plausible. And one of the things that struck me is when you go back to your three major thinkers after Rousseau, uh, Nietzsche, Marx, and Darwin, the 19th century, figures, you say that one of the very important things they did was that they robbed the world of teleology. How does a teleology interfere with the sexual revolution and everything that followed from it? Well, teleology, you know, the idea that human beings have an end, in some ways it's, it's a form of authority. Uh, the idea that, that all human beings have a common destiny is something which which then places restrictions on each of us as individuals. Uh, if, you, if you think that, that human destiny is to uh, be with God forever, to be, that earth is to prepare you for heaven and, and your, your destiny is to be prepared for heaven and then to spend eternity with God, then that places certain limits or certain strictures on your behavior here and now because you're preparing for an end. In the same way, if I jump in my car now and decide to go to Pittsburgh, I've got to point my car in a a certain direction. Geography imposes an authority on the decisions I will make on my journey. Same if you understand human nature as having a, a common destiny. That means there are certain things required of all human beings. We might say that's what's definitive of the notion of human nature. With, particularly with Nietzsche, you, you get the idea that, well, actually, there is no common destiny. Things just are. Human beings just are. And we can choose and we can make our own destiny for ourselves. There's no external authority. There's nothing out there to which we have to be answerable. And therefore, we can effectively create our own value systems, create our own end, direct ourselves wherever we wish to go. And that really detaches the whole notion of what it means to be a human being from any kind of transcendent moral criteria or you know, ethical destiny, if you like, and, and frees us up to self-invent ourselves. I, I didn't really mention him in the book, but I think Oscar Wilde would be a great example of the kind of thing that, that Nietzsche would point to as an ideal human being. He's a, a transgressive character. His life is a performance. Yeah. He, he makes it up as he goes along and, and thoroughly enjoys doing it. And there's a sense in which we're all kind of Oscar Wilde's now. We're all free of any external authority or destiny and therefore liberated to, to make it up as we go along. And hey, if I have the body of a man, uh, why should I conform to that? Uh, if, if my inner convictions tell me I'm a woman, why am I not free to, to perform as a woman? Why am I not free to realize my womanhood, despite what my body might tell me? You know, you go even back further to Rousseau who I guess, if they, you had to pick a foundational figure for all of this, Rousseau would be the one. You call him a, quote, strange genius. 
What, what was strange about Rousseau? <laughs> well, there are plenty of strange things about Rousseau, not least the fact that he had all of his children sent straight to orphanages after they were born, which was effectively a death sentence. That's right. Uh, any father who, who lacks that kind of natural affection for his children has got to be a strange man. Uh, Rousseau is strange because he, he lacks deep formal training, and yet he's an incredibly provocative thinker. And his idea that, that human beings, I mean, his famous statement, men are born free, but everywhere are in chains. And his idea that it's, it's culture that corrupts us, that culture forces us to conform to that which is alien to the inner voice of nature. That's become a very, very influential idea. I mean, if ever anybody spoke arrant nonsense, and yet it caught the, the cultural imagination and became a dominant way of thinking about life, Rousseau is kind of that man. And uh, I, I oscillate when I read him between despising the man because of who he was as a human being and admiring him for the audacity of his thought and for the remarkable way it has shaped the culture in which we live, the whole notion of the expressive individual, the idea that our authenticity is found in, in acting out publicly that which we feel inwardly, which again lies very much at the heart of the sexual revolution. Rousseau is really the first great exponent of that and carried all before him, really. Well, it's it's flattering, right? I mean, Rousseau, if I remember the opening of the confessions, I can't remember the exact wording, but he he opens the confessions by saying, you know, I'm I'm really not like anyone who has ever existed. And it almost says, well, all of us can be that way, too. I'm not like anyone who existed either. We're all unique. And you actually go so far as to tie the transgender claim to Rousseau's insistence on the absolute authority of the, quote, inner voice. Now, now that sounds right to me. That inner voice that somehow is taken as this is, this is the ground of truth. Yes. Uh, I mean, I was teaching a class just this morning and we were talking actually about what the, the transgender moment. And I was saying, you know, take somebody who, who has the body of a man and they claim to be a woman. Uh, I said, put them back 400 years. And culture is going to see that, society is going to see that as a problem of the mind. It could have happened back then, but it would be seen as a problem of the mind because the authority of the body would be taken for granted. And if there's a, a discontinuity between or a contradiction between the mind and the body, uh, then the body's going to win. We live in a culture where the mind wins, the inner voice wins. You know, how, and I say, how has that come about? Well, Rousseau's critical in that story because he's the guy who, who, who as, as you say, that, that voice of nature, that inner voice, carries supreme authority for him. And as you, uh, you hinted at this just a couple of moments ago, he said it's very flattering. Uh, of course it is. You know, from a Christian perspective, uh, we would say that's extremely attractive because it actually makes me feel like God. And you know, that, in some ways, is what sin's all about. When Augustine steals the pears in the Confessions and reflects on why he's done it, he comes to the conclusion, I did it because I broke the law, and breaking the law made me feel like God. It gave me a kick. Well, there's a sense in which uh, our modern culture, predicated on the kind of ideas that Rousseau articulated, allows us all to do that all the time, to feel like God, to feel sovereign. I've said things to my students that they just are so contrary to all of that. When, when I tell them that, you know, if we read a, a, an old poem or something, or we listen to an old piece of, of Mozart or 
or, or Berlioz. And I'll say to them, now, you guys, if you listen to that and you go, eh, you have to understand that means there's something wrong with you. <laughs> you need to, you need to change. Yeah. And that that usually just evokes blank stares from them because this is this just strikes them as bizarre, a bizarre notion that their own tastes wouldn't have their existing tastes wouldn't have authority at all times. Yeah. And I I mean, that goes really to the heart of, you know, what Philip Reef dubs the therapeutic therapeutic society. Uh, The purpose of, of your classes, Mark, today is not for you to challenge the tastes and convictions of your students it's for you to make them feel good about the tastes and convictions they have Uh, i think it was yuval levine in a recent book said that the purpose of institutions has changed in the last generation or two from somewhere where one goes to be formed to have one's tastes and ideas shaped by authorities to that which is allowing you to or giving you a platform a stage upon which to act out or perform according to your tastes and uh, i think what you've described there is is very much part and parcel of the the broader culture that we're in and that would lead me to say that on, on, while we can look at transgenderism for example and say that's a very extreme uh, form of of autonomy there's a sense in which we're all complicit in that because yeah none of us like external authority None of us like being challenged. All of us want the world to conform to us rather than the other way around. One of the points I try to make in the book is there's a lot of self-examination that we all need to do on this front. We can't just assume it's a question of us versus them. It's kind of sliding scale where we're all complicit to some extent. You turn to the poets. We go from Rousseau, the philosophers, to Wordsworth, Blake, and Shelley, the romantic poets. One thing you brought out about Wordsworth is, as you say, Wordsworth's mistrust of the elite, which I think is echoed strongly today in the populist movements that we see. What, to Wordsworth, makes the elite untrustworthy? I think that that his take on the elites, uh, particularly, he sort of outlines this in the preface to Lyrical Ballads and then in some correspondence that he engages in as as a result of the collection, that, that poetry collection. I think it's that the elites for Wordsworth are are fundamentally inauthentic. Again, sort of building off that Rousseau trajectory. He very much has the idea that if if you want to see human beings in the raw, if you want to see what real, genuine humanity is, you need to go to rural, simple settings, because there you have folks who live intuitively. You have folks there who are not trying to get one up on their rivals. They're not trying to act out a part in order to gain some status in society, you would see it, there's, a, there's, a, there's a genuineness, there's an authenticity to them there. So I think for, for Wordsworth, the problem with the elites is they're having to play this, this fake competitive game in order to maintain their position in society that, that he regards as ultimately making them, them fraudulent. Again, it's barriers are being put up between them and the voice of nature that really speaks about what it is to be uh, a human being. And the prelude, in some ways, is his great autobiographical poem, is one magnificent uh, statement of that kind of idea. I read it when I was 17 at school and didn't understand it at all. I went back to it 20 years later and found it incredibly moving 
piece of literature. Shelley was a rather high-born figure. I believe Shelley was the son of an earl. Is that correct? Yeah. I think. And, I think so, yes. Yeah. And yet he became a, a, a fierce radical. You call him, quote, a singular revolutionary importance. In the 21st century, I, I think it would strike so many people as ridiculous that a poet could be a powerful representative of revolution. <laughs> but but people paid a lot of attention to poets back then, didn't they? Yes. Uh, I, I mean, that's the... Uh... The key thing about Shelley is that, that I mean, he's not the only person saying this, but he, he understands that the way to influence the way people think is not simply to present them with arguments, but to pull on their heartstrings. Uh, he has an interesting statement in his defense of poetry where he, he lists a number of philosophers. And, uh, and in conclusion to this section, he says, but the only one of these philosophers I, I really take seriously is Rousseau, because Rousseau was also a poet. And by poet, he doesn't just mean a writer of verse, he means an artist in general, I think, at that point. And what he was highlighting there was art, broadly conceived, really shapes the way people think because it pulls on our heartstrings. It shapes our emotional tastes, one might say. And certainly today, you know, as, as you point out, maybe not many people read Shelley, maybe not, people, many, maybe not many people read great poetry, but a lot of the way that ordinary people think and intuit this world is shaped by artistic productions of varying degrees of quality, of course. But sitcoms, soap operas, even commercials, uh, they're not arguments so much as they are things that, that form and shape uh, the aesthetic taste of our morality, if you like. And when, we're, uh, when Shelley makes the comment that poets are unacknowledged legislators, I think he's really onto something there, that most people don't respond to argument so much as they respond to something that tugs at the heartstrings. I'm afraid, Carl, that uh, one of the drawbacks of the conservative movement in the United States is that they don't realize the power of narrative, of image. They, they want to argue ideas. They want to talk about values. They... They they want to you know they want they want to go to Edmund Burke instead of William Blake and I, I think that they they do end up uh, losing so often in the in the cultural sphere because they they don't understand that unacknowledged legislators of the world point of Shelley's yeah I think you're absolutely correct and I mean there are, I think there are good reasons why conservatives are often suspicious of narrative precisely because they can detach you from those kind of moral absolutes. You tell a heartbreaking story of somebody you know, who's accidentally got pregnant and, and if she brings the baby to term, it's going to impose hardship, etc., etc. Or she was the victim of a rape and, and doesn't want the child. And those things pull on the heartstrings and, and, and can shape how you think about that situation. And, and conservatives, I think, are right to be suspicious that narrative can, can sometimes be rather amoral and can, can, can carry you to places where we really don't want people to go. On the other hand, however, we do need to realize that, that we're not just brains on sticks. And, and uh, I mean, Donald Trump in some ways captured this. You know, he told rather crude narratives in many ways, but, but he caught people's hearts rather than their minds, I think, or certain people's hearts rather than minds. And you know, one of the things that conservatism has to do as it, as it rethinks its position in the kind of post-Trump era is how do we take account of you know, 
what Charles Taylor, I guess, would call human wholeness in the way we try to present uh, what I consider to be better arguments than, than our opponents. You, you turn to Nietzsche, Marx, and Darwin with the heading, quote, the emergence of plastic people. <laughs> what, what are plastic people? Well, in some ways, what I mean there really is is people who can effectively make of themselves what they will. We talked earlier on about teleology, and I think what those three figures do by getting rid of teleology is essentially make humanity or human nature something that is plastic. And certainly when detached from any kind of sacred order, detached from belief in God, human nature becomes something that we can invent and reinvent for ourselves mentioned Oscar Wilde earlier. We could look at at countless pop stars today who are constantly reinventing themselves. But also think about how we often typically live our lives. We make choices that determine our identity. We tend to imagine ourselves as being sovereign over, over who we are. We tend to see ourselves as having obligations that we contract into. They're not innate or inherent in who we are. And so we see the world very much as a stuff or, or material from which we can construct ourselves rather than as something that carries meaning in itself to which we have to conform in order to find out uh, who we are. So that was the kind of idea I was getting at there. But those three men really abolish any notion of a, a normative moral structure to human nature. We can go away and effectively make it up for ourselves. What do you say is the significance of the famous madman in the marketplace in Nietzsche, which you discuss for several pages? I love that passage. There are moments when I read Nietzsche and I think, man, he would be a great dinner companion. Nietzsche's point there (laughs) is, I mean, it comes in a section in the gay science that begins with him talking about, you know, after Buddha died, Buddha's shadow remained on the wall of a cave, terrifying people for 400 years. And that section of the gay science finds its culmination in the, in the madman uh, scene. And what Nietzsche is really pointing to there is the fact that the Enlightenment thinkers effectively got rid of God, but they want to maintain the moral order that was built upon the metaphysics of God. So in, uh, and Nietzsche's calling their bluff. He's essentially saying, you can't do this. You can't have your cake and eat it. You can't get rid of God. And yet blithely assume that the moral order built upon God will continue. Uh, interestingly enough, the madman towards the end says, I've, you know, nobody's listening to me. I've, I've come too early. Nietzsche was acutely aware, I think, that it takes time for the capital built on Christianity to be consumed after Christianity. And that's why when I teach Nietzsche at Grove, I say to the students, you know, Nietzsche is a far more significant figure today than he was in his own lifetime because he saw where things were going but knew it would take time to get there. We now live in an era where Christian capital is pretty much consumed in the West and things are changing rather rapidly from that perspective. You, like me, agree that Marx really is essential reading for understanding the the modern age. You find his understanding of technology, you call it prescient for us. What did Marx anticipate about today's technology? Marx, with his notion that all human relations are fundamentally economic relations, that led him to the obvious idea, I suppose, in retrospect, that 
given uh, the economy, certainly the modern industrial economy, uh, and now the post-industrial economy is predicated on technology, therefore technology will be profoundly influential in how human beings relate to each other. And he makes that remarkable statement in the Communist Manifesto where he, he says, you know, as mechanization uh, advances, uh, so the significance of physical strength will decline, and therefore the differences between men and women will become increasingly less significant. Now, there's no way that, you know, in 1848, Marx is anticipating Bruce slash Caitlyn Jenner. I don't think he's got that in his mind at all. But he's making the point there that ontology, to, to use Michael Hanby's phrase, technology is ontology. Technology absolutely shapes the way in which we imagine the world and way, the way we relate to the world. And indeed, even in the way that what would once have been thought of as, as absolutely obvious, common sense, immovable categories such as male and female can be transformed with the development of, of modern technology. So Marx, I think, is, is very important from that perspective. You know, if, if you're a thoughtful cultural commentator today, to some extent you're, you're indebted to Marx because you're going to grasp that point and you're going to realize how significant that point is for the way you engage the world around. We're recording over telephone here, Mark. Couldn't have done that 200 years ago. It would have been a, a long, dangerous journey for me to get to Virginia to, to have this conversation with you. Now I can pick up the phone and, and speak to you as if you're in the same room. Yeah, I don't know why I wish I were born uh, before the digital age and, and lived my life before the digital age came along, uh, Carl. I'm very ungrateful. I, I know. <laughs> the, tr the trick is to be born after the invention of flush toilets anesthetics and antibiotics but before there, the there we go age. That's the sweet <laughs> that, that that's right that's right now you said one thing about marx that he brought about that i actually think is one of the worst things that ever happened to human civilization quote the abolition of the pre-political what did this do to us? Well, again, there's a sense in which, sadly, you feel we're sort of all Marxists now on that front. When Marx made all human relations fundamentally economic at base, he also made them functions of what he saw as the class struggle. He made them functions of the political struggle. And when you think about the world in which we live now, the traditional, the little platoons, the, the pre-political organizations that Burke thought were so important to the stability and constitution of society, you know, the Boy Scouts, the church, informal gatherings, men's clubs, working men's clubs, etc., etc., all of these things, they've become highly political now. Boy Scouts is, is, you know, why can't we have girls in the Boy Scouts? Oh, well, we'll, we'll take them to court over that. What about scout leaders' sexuality? You know, let's, let's have a court case about that. The baking of a cake becomes a highly political gesture. Uh, and as I say, we're all Marxists now because the problem is as soon as one side decides to make something political, everybody has to deal with it or treat it as a political uh, institution. So I think when Marx sort of decided that all of human life could essentially be seen through the, the lens of political struggle, he really pulled the rug out from what I would regard as some of the most important stabilizing blocks of society, that everything we do now has become contentious. And yeah, I think you're absolutely correct. So there's much I appreciate in Marx relative to some of his insights on technology, etc. But 
that is an absolutely disastrous philosophical move to make. There's much, much more in the book about the new left and other more current issues, which uh, I encourage listeners to read. It is entitled The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, Cultural Amnesia, Expressive Individualism, and the Road to Sexual Revolution. Carl Truman, thank you for joining us. Hey, thanks for having me on, Mark. And thank you for listening to our conversation, which has been supported by Wyoming Catholic College, which combines great books, the Catholic tradition, and the great outdoors of the American West into an extraordinary education. Go to wyomingcatholic.edu or contact the admissions office at 877-332-2930.